order to our universe, to the things that happen in our lives. But what about karma? Is that true and observable in our society, in our lives? Uh, Karma is that belief that what comes around goes around. You do evil and evil comes back. You do good, good comes back. Is that true? What about God? Is God involved in our lives? Is he involved in the day-to-day operations of the world? Or is he rather distant? Is he involved? And if so, how involved is he? These and many questions like them are often difficult to answer and often hotly debated. People throughout our our time, throughout our world, have sought to really get at these questions about God, about the order of the universe, the order of the events of our lives. Is there some pattern to our lives? Is the history of humanity cyclical or linear? That is, is it always just recycling the same events over and over? Does history repeat itself, if you will? Or are we on a linear trajectory? And what about God? If there is a God, how involved is God in the lives of people? Does He control them? Are they like robots? Or are they free creatures to do whatever they wish to do. What does the Bible say about those things? How involved is God? How apart is God? Is He involved or distant? Well, friends, this morning we're going to consider some of these questions as we go to the book of Ruth. And there we'll find that the Bible reveals to us that God is not distant from his creation, but that he is distinct from his creation. In other words, God is not distant as some present forms of philosophy like deism teach, that God is somehow distant from his creation, like perhaps dominoes. God set up dominoes and he kind of was the one that knocked over the first domino. He's the one that kind of got the engine going. He got the thing moving, and then he kind of just was hands-off after that point. So some point in the past, God set everything up, and he got it going, and, and he just right now is not involved. In this world philosophy, God is distinct and uninvolved from the day-to-day operations of the world. Or is he more like what is taught in the view of pantheism? That is, that God is not distinct from creation, but rather God is a part of creation. That is, that everything that is created, God is a part of. He, his essence is in all of it. He is in all of it, and all of it is in Him. But then, we come to the biblical doctrine of providence. That God is not distinct from creation, or distant, excuse me, from creation, but that he is distinct from creation. That God is not distant, he's involved in the everyday operations of the world. In fact, he's moving creation to his 
purposes and for His glory. I wonder this morning, how involved do you think God is in your life? Does God just check in from now and now when time is maybe perhaps convenient for Him? Or is God involved in the everyday moments of your life? Well, friends, for help answering that question and those many more that I sort of brought up, let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth. So I just invite you to get a Bible. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, we have pew Bibles in front of you. Grab one of those pew Bibles and open it to Ruth. Now, you may not know where Ruth is, and and if you're just thumbing through the Bible, you probably won't find it because it's a very small book uh, in in the beginning of the Bible. On page uh, 223 or 222 in the Pew Bibles. So if you have a black Pew Bible, you just turn to page 222, and you should be uh, real close, if not right there at Ruth. Um, And and one of the things I always want to encourage you with is don't be afraid to use the table of contents. Uh, No one in this room thinks less of you uh, because you did not memorize the books of the Bible. In fact, that's not really even a command in Scripture. You might have wasted your time. Um, But I invite you to turn to Ruth chapter 2. And we're going to consider this morning our time together the entire chapter. And uh, so I'm going to read it now. It's a lengthy chapter, so stay with me. Stay alert. Stay awake. Um, Not because I have something wonderful to say, but because these words are the very words of the eternal God, the God who created you. These are his words to you this morning. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose side I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to his reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man, who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please, let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping. And go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz said to her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, 
I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also, pull out some of the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. She took took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed is the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The the man's name with whom I have worked today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the the living or the dead. Naomi said, also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabitess said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Amen. Well, friends, as you notice, this is a very long passage for which we could spend much time on. Um, However, we're going to kind of take a big view of this passage, not look at all the particular details of it, but hopefully carry away from this the main overarching message of this passage. So one of the things that's helpful is we consider what does this passage mean? What the heck is going on in here? I hope you feel the tension of this passage, the very distance of this passage. That is, what's happening in these uh, chapters is nothing like what we see in our lives today. Now, we need to begin by just recognizing that this is nothing what we notice in the 21st century. We have nothing to compare uh, to what is happening here for Ruth and Boaz and Naomi. Though there are similarities to maybe perhaps our lives, we need to really take a bigger view of this passage and see perhaps where is God in all of this but before we do that what's happened up to this point when chapter one last week we considered how Naomi and her husband Elimelech had left their uh, their hometown of Bethlehem and they had fled to Moab Moab was a country uh, just south of Israel uh, filled with Moabite people people who were not particular friendly with the Israelites. Uh, they were actually uh, not friends, but enemies. And, uh, and they had fled to this foreign land. And when uh, Naomi and her husband went to this foreign land, they went with their two sons. And we learned that their two sons married Moabite women, uh, women who uh, were clearly uh, not Israelites, something that was forbidden in the law. They shouldn't have done, but they did anyways. They spent some time there, and uh, the story went on that Naomi's husband, Elimelech, died, and then her two sons died, leaving her helpless, homeless, and without any 
provisions in her life. And as she contemplated what to do next, she heard that the Lord had again returned to her people. And so she went back to Bethlehem. And we are told that she went back with one of her daughters-in-law, Ruth. And in that sort of striking passage, she tells the women of Bethlehem that she went away full, but has returned empty. Or, oh, or she thought she came back empty. And that's what we considered last week, how God was sovereign and how God was working in the lives of this small family to bring about some really big purposes in his life, in their lives, excuse me. And so what's the point of chapter 2? What is it that God is getting at? What is it that this story is getting at? And I think it could be summarized in just a simple sentence. There are no accidents with God. There are no accidents with God. God providentially brings about his purposes in the lives of all people. God brings about the purposes, His purposes, in the lives of all people. Uh, Throughout our service this morning, we have made reference to the word God's sovereignty. Uh, We use that in our our language today to talk about a nation's sovereignty. That is, a nation has sovereignty uh, rule over a particular people or a particular land. And uh, the doctrine of God's sovereignty is that God is a king who rules over the universe, that everything is under his authority. Everything is under his rulership. And then sort of a step-down implication of God's sovereignty is God's providence. That is, because God is sovereign, what flows out of God's sovereignty is his providential care where he brings about his purposes in the lives of everyday people. That God is doing something in your life and in my life for his glory and our good. That's what we want to think about this morning in this story. So in our time this morning, I want to consider really two overarching points. Number one, first, God's providence over the ordinary affairs of men. And then consider, secondly, how God's providence works itself out in the free choices of men. So that is to say, often God's sovereignty, God's providence, is pitted against man's freedom. So you'll notice when we read our statement of faith earlier, there was a statement about how God purposes everything in the lives of his people, but yet how we are free people. We have free choices. We make choices in our lives. I remember years ago, R.C. Sproul uh, talking about, are we robots? And he he said, you know, Robots don't have minds of their own. They do what they're programmed. And clearly we have minds of our own. We can do what we want. We can make the decisions we want. But God uses those things for his glory. And friends, we want to think about a big God this morning. We want to blow up our minds of God. That is, uh, I think a lot of us have a small God in our lives. We think of God as being a small God. A God who, you know, really can't change a whole lot. A God that can't move mountains. A God who can't throw stars into the sky. But rather, what we see in this story is that God is doing something. In other words, there are no accidents with God. 
So let's consider first God's providence over the ordinary affairs of men. My point is, and I think the point of this passage, I think the narrator of the story does not want us, as I mentioned last week, to simply focus on the characters of the story and miss God. I think clearly the point of this story is God. The, the, the point of the whole book of Ruth is God. In fact, the, the point of the whole Bible is God. The revelation of who God is. And so I think this story is telling us who God is. That God is, has his hand in our lives. And particularly in the lives of these characters this morning. Notice with me in this passage first, God's hand in their lives. As we were reading through this passage, I don't know if you heard it, oh, but it rings so loudly. As we are told about sort of the circumstances in verse 1, sort of a summary, there's this guy named Boaz. We're going to consider him in a moment. And by the way, we are going to look at the characters in a moment as we think about the free choices of men and how we are to live in light of God's providence. But before we do that, I want to look at God. And as we are reading through this, we are told that, that Ruth is having a conversation with Naomi. And, and Ruth says, you know, I'm going to go out and I'm going to go glean in the fields. Now, what the, what's going on here with that? What's going on with that? Well, one of the things we understand is that God had made provisions in the life of his people that, that for the poor, the widow, for the refugee living in the land of Israel, that there was a kind of welfare system. And that welfare system was that poor folks were allowed to go out into the fields and pick up the scraps that were left behind. Have you ever watched farmers, even in our industrial age with big farming equipment, as they sweep through a field? Uh, we notice that their, their hope is to get as much out of that field as possible, right? Because anything that's left behind, any soy being left behind, any corn left behind, any, any crop left behind is what? That's a loss in profit. That's money left in the field. And so we want to get as much up as possible. Uh, but not so in the nation of Israel. In fact, what, was hap what would happen is that they would leave behind some of the, the grain. They would leave behind uh, some of the sheaves. They would leave that behind so that the poor could pick that up. They could, uh, they could harvest it themselves. They could do what they needed to do to get the, the grain out uh, of the heads of the stalks. And then they could take it home and make bread and so on and so forth or sell it uh, in order to exchange it for some other things like meat and other, other commodities. And so what we see Ruth doing in this passage is, is sort of fulfilling that law that God had given. Now, how did she know that? Well, clearly she probably learned it from Naomi. This would have been a custom. This would have been normal, uh, just as normal as welfare is in our society. So also people would have known where to get this thumb. Now I would just say just a little word. Uh, notice in this passage that it wasn't no hand-me-out, that they had to go and work for it. They had to go and get it. Right? It wasn't a handout. It was something that they had to go and labor for. And even in her labors, we'll see in a moment, was a reflection of her character. But I want you to look at this passage. And as we're told that she goes out, as we're told that she goes out into the field, I want you to notice something here, what happens. Look with me in verse 2. And Roth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose side I, I shall find favor. She's like, I'm going to go out and I'm going to do this. Look at verse 3. Oh, excuse me. And Naomi said, go, my daughter. Look at verse 3. And she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened 
to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. She happened upon the field of Boaz. Now, now to be clear, you know, in our modern farming industri- farming world, uh, our our fields are marked off, right? So if you've ever been to the, like you know farming regions, areas around us, uh, or if you've ever been in a plane and got to see sort of aerial shots of fields. Um, you, you can see that they're clearly marked off, right? You can see the determined lines. Well, not so in, in ancient Israel. All the fields were one giant field. It was everyone's field. It was the community field. But in the community field, there was land marked off. So you could easily venture off of your field onto someone else's field really, really easily. Uh, why Boaz exhorts her to stay in the field, to follow the women, to follow the men, the people who know the boundary lines. Don't, don't get into the wrong field. And so as she goes out, right, you've got harvesters, you've got hundreds of people stretched out along the landscape, people all over, right? This is a good time. Why? Why? Because it had been a famine and now there was food. So this was a time of excitement. People would have been out. You know, people aren't chilling at home, right? They're starving. They're out in the fields. They are gleaning this grain. Out of all of the hundreds that would have been out in the fields, out of all of the places she could have ended up, she happens to end up in the field of Boaz. No, I think the author here is using this particular word. This is also, this same word is only used one other time in the Bible, in Ecclesiastes, when Solomon himself is pointing to God's providence, his care, his control over the cosmos. And it's really the conclusion that Ecclesiastes really comes to, that God is in control. And so, I want to begin just with some helpful definitions. Wayne Grudem, in his systematic theology, provides us just a really helpful and, I think, succinct definition of God's providence when he writes, God is continually involved with all created things in such a way that, one, he keeps them existing and maintaining the properties with which he created them. So he maintains his creation. Number two, he cooperates excuse me, with created things in every action directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. And number three, directs them to fulfill his purposes. That is to say that God is involved in the minute details of our lives and that he is driving the free choices of men towards his eternal purposes. In the end, in our lives, we are fulfilling God's purposes whether we are doing it willingly or unwillingly. What we see here in this passage is that Ruth's willingness to care for her mother was a sign of God's providence in in their lives. Her willingness to go out and actually, you know, she didn't sit at home moping, she didn't sit at home weeping, she didn't sit at home grieving. She recognized That if I don't get out and do this, my mother-in-law is going to starve to death. I will starve to death. And so throughout this passage, I think what we're seeing is that God is bringing about exactly what Naomi prayed for, for Ruth in chapter 1. That God, the Almighty, would work in her life. And so the narrator is pushing us to that conclusion. Look with me at verse 20. Look at me at verse 20. 
And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he, that is Boaz, be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Now as we think about that passage, whose kindness, who does the whose refer, refer to there? Right? So on Wednesday nights we do this a lot. You know, who does the who refer to? And, and oftentimes it's very clear, right, who the who refers to here. But in this case it's not clear. Is it Boaz or is it God? Well, I think it's both, both Boaz, but it's we clearly, I think, are meant to understand that it's God's kindness reflected in Boaz. And so God is working in her life, in their lives, to bring about his purposes. God is demonstrating himself to be a providential God. God has not left these people, but God is moving them towards the ends he designs. We see also that... As she continues in verse 20, Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Now, we don't have time to talk about what that really particular means. Chapter 3 is devoted to that, and so that's where we're going to spend a lot of our time next week. What does that mean? What is a kinsman redeemer? And well, we're going to think about that a lot in chapter 3. But suffice it to say that God is working in the lives of his people to care for them and to bring about his eternal purposes. Through this small family, God is going to do something really big. God is going to bring the Savior of the world through this small family. Jesus Christ himself comes as a descendant of this family. And so we want to understand that God is moving toward, toward this end. The entire operation that takes place here is meant for us to understand that God is providing for his people. As I mentioned earlier about the law of the Lord in Deuteronomy where God had said to, 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 him, to his people that you are to provide for the poor, for the widow, and for the refugee, we are to understand who made that law. God made that law as a reflection of his own character. As we're told in Deuteronomy 10, for the Lord your God is a God of gods and a Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. And so when we see Boaz providing to Ruth and Naomi, when we see these refugee, this refugee and this, these widows being provided for, we are to understand that this is God's kindness in their lives. That it is the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 10 in their lives. That God loves, do you hear that? Loves the refugee. I just wonder, do we, in our country, the way we often talk about foreigners and refugees, we don't often talk about them in a way that reflects God's love for them. God's love for the sojourner is always great. Well, not only do we see that God is sovereign in their lives, that God's providence is working out in their lives, but the whole Bible testifies that God is providential over all lives, that God's hand is in all lives. Uh, throughout the Bible, we are taught that God is in the details, that God, it, there's no uh, accidents with God. Uh, God is moving everything. Consider Job, right? The whole story of Job uh, where Job faces suffering, where Job is afflicted at the hand of Satan. Who was behind that? Was it Satan? No, it was God. God 
permitted Satan to do those things. God purposed the tragedy and destruction into Job's life so that God could demonstrate himself to Job. Job was learning God's providence, and he was learning not to complain about it. In Proverbs 16, 9, we are told the heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his self. You plan your days. You do your thing. But in the end, the Lord establishes your steps. In James, in chapter 1, the epistle tells us that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights. Every gift we have in our lives, everything we have. That's why when we sing the doxology, that's what we're singing, right? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. We recognize God's sovereign hand. We submit to that in our lives. We want to trust that. Or Jesus tells us that both good things come to those who are good and those who are evil. God brings good things even to, into those who are evil. Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount that God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. Regardless of their righteousness, God blesses those whom he chooses. In Hebrews 1.3, we are told that Christ is upholding the universe by the word of his power. That Christ is upholding it. That is, he is keeping it. That without his hand in the universe, everything would be crumbling down. Or in Colossians 1.17, Paul tells us that in him all things hold together. That he is the glue that holds the universe together. Scientists may wane and whine about global warming, but I will submit to you this, that this world will warm if the sovereign Lord of the universe wants it to warm, and it will cool when the sovereign Lord of the universe wants it to cool. God's hand is in that. Or as we heard from Grudem earlier, God cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. Uh, if you, what he's saying is that he pushes everything. He's moving you toward a particular end. But hear it from God's own word. God accomplishes all things according to the counsel of his will. I just wonder, do you, have you ever wrestled with that text? Have you ever wrestled with what I'm saying? That God purposes all things, that he accomplishes all things according to his purposes? That God brings all things about? I mean, he means all things, right? Right? All things? Even what we've seen to be insignificant things? Paul tells us, who has known the mind of the Lord? Concludes how unsearchable his ways and excuse me, how unsearchable his mind and inscrutable his ways. We are not meant to understand and to know why, but to submit that God is in control. That's where we find rest and where we find encouragement. And therefore we reject deism. We reject pantheism. We reject those philosophies and we embrace the doctrine of providence. That God's hand is in all things for his own purposes. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that God is moving all things for his glory? That he's in control of all things in your life? That you exist in a particular time in history, in a particular family, in a particular state? At a particular age, all purpose.
purposed by God. His hand is in all of those things. His hand is moving all of those things. That is what Ruth is meant to teach us. That in poverty and plenty, God is there. That that when we have nothing and when we have a lot, God is there. That God has brought those things and he will take those things away. Or do you believe what the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 8.28? That God works all things together for the good. For those who are called according to his purpose. That God works all things. All things. Really? Even the tragedy? Even suffering? Even pain? I wonder, will you submit to this revelation of God? Will you trust in faith that even through, though we cannot understand, though we don't really see the end in sight, though we don't understand the difficulty, perhaps the pain that we are experiencing, that we will learn in pain and in relief. But God is guiding us by His hand. Will you rejoice in suffering, that the, as the Apostle Peter calls us? Consider what Peter says, in this you rejoice. In what? In suffering. You rejoice in suffering? What? Peter, are you crazy? Peter knew what suffering was. He knew. He felt it. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that... The tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We suffer, we endure trials so that our faith might grow. So it was for Ruth and so it was for Naomi. They were learning to trust the Lord's hand even though they couldn't see it even though she happened into a field. So the truth is that God purposes all things, yet we are his free creatures and have a responsibility to love God's word even when no one else does. We must not pit God's sovereignty and our freedom. In fact, I will say this, we're not as free as we think we are. Because of our sin, we are bound. Martin Luther, in his great work, The Bondage of the Will, lays clear that we are not free creatures. But we are bound to wickedness and sin, that we are depraved. But God in His grace has saved us. He has redeemed us. So how do we reconcile? How do we not pit the two against each other? We understand from this passage how to live in light of God's providence. How free creatures like Ruth and Naomi and Boaz live. So we submit that God is sovereign. God is moving these events. But these these people are real people that God is using for his own glory, but they are free in their choices. And so this passage displays sort of the second main point, is our responsibility to display God's kindness in our lives. Let's look first at Ruth's character. And we're just going to move through these very quickly. First, Ruth. Oh, friend, just look 
at this sweet sister and her character. Notice first her resolve in verse 3 to serve her mother-in-law. The character of Ruth was one of servant. She was a servant. She wanted to serve her mother-in-law. She didn't have to do this. She didn't have to come back with her mother-in-law. There was nothing there, right? Her mother-in-law, we were told in chapter 1, no, Naomi's like, no, no. <laughs> Naomi told her repeatedly, go home, go home, go back to your people. Don't come back with me. Go back to your people. But she comes because she has a servant's heart and she had a commitment. Her love in this passage is to be exemplified. We are to exemplify this, but we need to submit that this is merely a reflection of God's kindness in her life. She is reflecting back to us the kindness that God has shown her. Particularly the kindness that she's going to show her. Where she will become the great-great-grandmother of King David. Where her name will forever be etched into the story of God's redemption of every tribe tongue. That this woman will be forever remembered as the grandmother of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We see also in this passage her character is exemplified and modeled for us in her persistence, in her labor. Though she was poor, she wasn't looking for a handout, but she labored to get what she earned. She worked hard. In verse 7 we are told in the report... Uh, from Boaz's servant that she came and she has continued in verse 7 from early morning until now except for a short rest. She was a hard worker. She had faith that God was going to provide for her. And in verse 17 we are told after a long day of work she continued until evening. She did not rely on anyone else to beat out the grain, grain but she did it herself. She endured in that. And then in verse 7, we're told something quite amazing about her, and that is her reputation. In verse 11, the reputation uh, of her character had gotten out. In fact, Boaz had already heard about it. Ruth was the talk of the town, but not in a bad way, in a good way. The elders there at the gate of the city, I'm sure, were talking about it. There was a buzz about Ruth, this Moabitess, this foreigner, the way we often in our own country despair over foreigners, was similar there in the nation of Israel. Moabite people are just here to take our food and our work. My goodness, I can't have my job anymore if these refugees get here. And so was the talk. But this woman was different. She was like Abraham. She left everything she knew and went to a country she had never been to. She had traveled far and wide, but she came to a people she had never met and submitted to live with them. All you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been told, fully told me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know. Oh, she had a reputation of faith about her, of diligence about her. And friends, this is the story of Scripture that we are called to leave everything to receive a gift we do not deserve. That we are called to lay down everything to receive something that which we did not earn. Ruth didn't earn these blessings that she was receiving. Ruth was, was outside the promises of God. 
Ruth was not an Israelite. She was outside the promises given to Abraham, or so we think. And so what we see here is God's story of Scripture where He is calling a people unto Himself, a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and that He will even use a non-Israelite to bring about His plan of redemption. Friends, we must never conclude that it's all about the Israelites. No, the story of the Old Testament is that the Israelites were to reach out to the nations. In fact, the promise given to Abraham in Genesis 12 and 13 was the promise that he would bless all nations through his descendants. And so we see the fulfillment of that here, a partial fulfillment nonetheless. But Ruth is beginning to be brought in, grafted in, just like you and I are grafted into the promise of God that he gave to Abraham, so we are grafted in through Christ, through the great-great-grandson of Ruth. We too are brought into the promises of God. But not only do we see Ruth's character as a reflection of God's kindness, we see Boaz's character also. From the very beginning of this chapter on down through, we see Boaz on display as one who is noble and a worthy man. Chapter 2 and verse 1, Naomi had a relative of her husband, a worthy man. Oh, really, how worthy was he? Oh, we are told how worthy he is. Do you remember the context here of the stories? These were dark times for God's people. These were the, this is the period of the judges, right? Where everyone did what was right in his own eyes, where nobody followed the law of the Lord. Well, apparently there was a person who was following the law of the Lord. Right? That commandment we considered earlier in Deuteronomy, that, that, that they were to provide sheaves, that they were to provide leftovers. Look, if you're not going to follow God's law, why would you follow that one? That's more profit for you. But clearly Boaz here is a, is a man of character, a, a noble man, one after God's own heart, one that is following even in dark times. Even when it appeared that everyone was abandoning the law of the Lord, Boaz is one who had the word of the Lord upon his lips. Well, what, what did he say when he came to his workers? Look with me in verse 5. Excuse me, in verse 4. The Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Right? This is the time when, when people were doing whatever they wanted. They didn't care about the Lord. That word Lord it, it has the idea that he's king, that he's sovereign. Right? The problem was is in the judges period is everybody wanted to be king, didn't want to make God king. Right? And that's what happens, right? When we want to live life our own way, we all want to be kings. We all want to be queens. But here in this passage, we see Boaz submitting to the Lord as the sovereign one over his life. He's providing. He's caring. He provides for Ruth in this passage. He provides safety for her. He cares for her. And he demonstrates just extraordinary kindness to her. Not only does he give her the provisions of the land, the leftovers, but look at verse 14. He doesn't even give her just leftovers. He gives her stuff. I mean, look, he, look, he, he invites a foreign woman to sit at his table. This is a no-no. Culturally, this is right. The Israelites didn't eat with Moabite people. They didn't even like them. They were they didn't know you're dirty. Get out of here. We, you're, you're the dirty old refugee. Go sit over there with the slaves. No, he brings her in to the table. Now, he's an old guy and she's a young lady. 
Uh, he's, there's nothing about him that, that's all attractive or nothing great about him. This isn't, you know, we don't want to read something wrong into this story. What we want to see is he's demonstrating the extraordinary kindness of God toward Ruth beyond normal expectations of even a redeemer. He's going above and beyond for her. He's demonstrating. And, and friends, what we see is he is beginning to fulfill the role of a husband. He is providing and protecting her. He's giving her food. He's giving her provisions. But we also see that he is protecting her, right? He tells her, don't go to any other field. Look, this is an evil time. This is a dark time in the nation of Israel. And particularly for unprotected women. And they could have, she could have ventured off into the wrong field and been assaulted. And so Boaz says, stay in my field. I will keep you safe. My servants will watch out after you. My women will care for you. Oh, this is all above and beyond anything that Ruth is owed. And so as we consider both these characters, it is a reflection of God's kindness in their lives. God was putting on display his kindness. He is fulfilling all of those prayers that we looked at in chapter 1. All of the prayers that we see here in chapter 2, that the Lord repay you for what you have done. A full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Oh, upon the very lips of the person who prays is the one who will fulfill it. Boaz will be the one that's going to fulfill that very prayer in the lives, life of Ruth. And so for us, we take away from this that our character is important in a world that does not love God's word. And so how can we share the same kindness to others that we see exemplified here? We need to realize that what Boaz is doing here isn't salvific. This isn't some sort of works righteousness. But this is a reflection of what God was already doing. He is recognizing this is God. Let me tell you, the God of the Israelites. And so when we serve others with kindness, when we are kind toward others, it is a reflection of God's kindness towards us. When we are kind, what we are saying is that God is kind. When we are kind, we are saying that God has been kind to us. It is an overflow of God's kindness. And friends, you see that overflow in this passage? Boaz invites her to a meal, right? Come sit at my table. And we're told that she ate until she was satisfied and had leftovers. And where do those leftovers go but to Naomi? She takes those leftovers to Naomi. And she extends God's kindness to even those around her. We also see in this passage a kind of community that is reflected in the community of Christ. Where members are caring for one another. We remember in the beginning of the book of Acts that the members of the first church came together and they brought what they had so that they could care for those in need. They had what was left over and they, they didn't just store it away for themselves. They didn't keep it in some savings account somewhere for a rainy day, but they brought it to the people and cared for the widows. They cared for the orphans. They cared for the refugees. Friends, if you look over the history of the church, who was it that started hospitals? Who was it that started orphanages and programs to help poor? It was Christians 
a reflection of Ruth chapter 2. Because we believe that we receive from God what we do not deserve. And we give to others what they do not deserve. So does your kindness only extend to those who have been kind to you? Does your kindness, does the kindness you exemplify in your life only to those who are good to you? Or to even those that are outside of your family? Boaz was kind to Ruth, though she had done nothing to deserve his kindness. She was kind to her, to her, to her mother-in-law. And so we will never be kinder than God. That's true. We submit to that. But we are to reflect God's kindness in our lives. And so do you believe that God is at work in all things? Do you submit yourselves to that truth? That God's providential care over all of our lives. Consider Joseph who was banished to die by the hand of his own brothers. Sold into slavery. He was wrongly accused, sentenced to prison. He was forgotten there in prison. But in all the evil that he was experiencing by the hands of others, he continued to trust the Lord. Even he was restored, being appointed to the second highest position in all of Egypt. But why? Why did he suffer? Why did he endure evil? Why did God do all of that in his life? We'll hear it from Joseph's own lips. Do not fear, for I am in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You see, God brings about his own purposes for his own glory. His hand is in everything. To bring down kings and to raise up kings. To destroy nation and to bring up nation. To cause pain and suffering, but to cause goodness and grace for the purpose of for purposes too great for us to even understand. Too marvelous. But hear how the story of Joseph ends. Thus Joseph comforted his brothers. And said to them. And spoke to them kindly. The kindness of God. The same word here. The same kindness expressed here. Is the same kindness that expressed and so our exhortation this morning is that the kindness of God would be again on display through our lives for his glory. Let's pray. Gracious God in heaven, we give honor and praise to you in Christ Jesus' name. We honor you and give you glory that you are God who is providential over our lives. And we submit that to you this morning. We submit ourselves to that. We rest in that. We give just comfort in that this morning. And Lord, we just pray that, that as we live our lives, that we would reflect the kind of kindness we see. Your kindness in our lives would be reflected in our kindness toward others. Father, help us in that endeavor, we pray in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Our rest this morning.